I have a, a confession this morning that is not shocking at all to anyone who has seen my bookshelves. I'm a bit of a history nerd. Any, any other history nerds here? I, I love all, all kinds of history, and one of my favorite areas of history is the American presidency. I love reading about the office and about the people who've held that office. And I've noticed that some historians love to make lists about the presidency. Who were the best presidents? Who were the worst? Who were the most consequential? Who were the best athletes? Who were the best musicians? Like historians get bored sometimes and try to come up with things like this. And near the top of any list of best presidents is number 16, the left-hander from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, right? He's always you know, number one or two on any ranking, largely because of his beard, right? Let's, let's admit, right? It's, and then also for this little fact that he, his, his leadership helped keep the union together during the Civil War. Lincoln's accomplishments are pretty remarkable, but I think another reason that he is still so popular and highly regarded today is the character he displayed in office and really throughout his entire life. In so many ways, he was drastically different from other presidents, especially those in our more recent vintage. Right? So one example, uh, it, at the 1860 Republican Convention in Chicago, the party gathered to, to select their nominee for the presidency. Unlike the system today with primaries and caucuses in the various states, in those days, all of the balloting was done at the convention. So going into that event, there were, there were four men who were kind of regarded as the front runners. And these were, they, they were pr pretty well known. They were pretty accomplished. They'd been senators or governors or members of the house. So we had these four front runners. And then we also had Abraham Lincoln, a lawyer from Springfield, Illinois, who'd served one term in the house about a decade earlier and who'd run for the Senate two times unsuccessfully. So needless to say, the other candidates didn't think of Lincoln as much of a threat, and they didn't have much good to say about him. They viewed him as an awkward, backwoods lawyer, which he was. <laughs> but the amazing thing, spoiler alert here, is that he became the consensus candidate and won the nomination. Later that year, he won the general election and became the 16th president of the United States. And here's one of the amazing things about Lincoln. After he was elected, uh, and it came time to select a cabinet, he, he kind of looked over his entire party and realized that his biggest rivals for the nomination, the four front runners going into that convention, the men I, I just mentioned, were also the most qualified to serve alongside him. These men had ridiculed him, and looked down on him and thought they themselves were more qualified for the job that he now had. But he put aside his pride and invited them to serve in the most important roles in his cabinet. Secretary of State, Attorney General, Secretary of War, Secretary of Treasury. And over time, they all came to, to revere Lincoln as president. Uh, later on, Lincoln had to replace his Secretary of War and one of the people he considered for the role was a guy named Edwin Stanton. And Stanton, like the others, initially held a low opinion of Lincoln. He called him a long-armed ape, an imbecile, and a disgrace. 
But Lincoln recognized that Stanton was the best person for this job, so he hired him. And not only that, but he listened to him. At one point in the Civil War, uh, Lincoln issued an order that Stanton did not agree with. And uh, he said that Lincoln was a fool for reaching this particular conclusion. And word got back to the president that the Secretary of War had said this. So Lincoln said, did, did Stanton really call me a fool? And the person who was reporting back said, yes, and he actually repeated it. And Lincoln paused and thought about it and replied, well, if Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be one, because Stanton is nearly always right and generally says what he means. And Lincoln changed his mind. What we're seeing here is a picture of humility. And it stands out because it's so rare. It's rare in presidential history. It's rare in our society in general. It's rare in the church. It's also rare in the Roman Empire, which is the context uh, that we're examining this month as we, as we work through the book of Philippians. So the Apostle Paul, while he was sitting in prison in Rome with some time on his hands, wrote a letter, it dictated a letter to the community of Jesus followers in the city of Philippi, a Roman colony in Macedonia. And in this letter, Paul explains to the Philippians and then all of us who get to read it now, how to live on earth as citizens of heaven. While we live in this world, we belong to another, which is what we talked about last week. So in light of this reality, how are we to go about our daily lives? And we saw last week in, in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27, he wrote, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whenever I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together in one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. And from this verse and the rest of chapter 1, we drew out a few principles. One, this world is not our home. We are ambassadors from a coming kingdom. Uh, our conduct reflects on the king who sent us, the king being Jesus, of course. And that conduct is to be marked by unity, righteous character, and overflowing love. And now here today in Philippians chapter 2, we'll see that the basis of this conduct, uh, the, the attitude behind it, the mindset behind it, is humility. Humility isn't just a personality trait that some people have, like, like Lincoln, and some people don't have. It, it is that, but it's also much more. Humility is our calling as followers of Jesus. This is our calling. And, and like many aspects of Christianity, this emphasis on and calling to humility is countercultural. The world that we live in, our society, our culture, flows in one direction. And it's the way of pride and self-promotion and prioritizing my own rights. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, it will be different. And of course, he is the one who is the, the best example of true humility. People like Lincoln are good examples. We, we probably know people in our lives who are also good examples of humility. But Jesus is our best example. So I want to look at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2 and, and, and see what Jesus shows us about humility. So Philippians chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? 
Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This is the, the key in this whole passage. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, because of this obedience, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you're into memorizing scripture, those are 11 verses that would be worth memorizing. This is an amazing passage. In the realm of biblical scholarship, this section of Philippians 2 is one of the most studied passages in all of Paul's writing. The theologian Gordon Fee wrote a number of commentaries on Paul's letters, uh, in, including Philippians, and, and he says this about Philippians 2. Fee said, here is the very heart of Pauline theology, both, both his understanding of God's being and his understanding of what God is doing in our fallen world. Here is where the one who is equal with God has most fully revealed the truth about God, that God is love, and that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice, cruel, humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those he loves. The divine weakness, death at the hands of his creatures, is the divine scandal. The cross was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. So in this passage, Paul first appeals to the connection that he and the Philippians share through God. Remember that Paul and Silas and their church planting team are the ones who years earlier carried the good news of Jesus to Philippi and started the church there. So in verses one through four, Paul says, if our relationship, our history together means anything, then make me happy. See that? He said, make me happy by listening to what I have to say. And what I have to say is this, don't be selfish. Pretty practical. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Don't think only of yourself, but think of others too. And then he, he sum, summarizes that in verse five. He said, you must have the same attitude or mindset that Christ Jesus had. Jesus was humble. He put the needs of others before his own desires. He was the opposite of selfish. He was selfless. He did only what the Father instructed him to do. And Paul says that we must have the same attitude or mindset. Our mindset is the lens through which we see and interpret the world. Our calling as Christ followers and Christ imitators is to adopt and develop a mindset of humility. And then verses 6 through 11, Paul tells the story of how Jesus humbled himself and the result of that. And I want to go through this section verse by verse 
to help us really get what, what Paul is revealing about Jesus through this. So verse 6 says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In Colossians, another one of Paul's letters, he makes clear that Christ is the creator and not a created being like us. In chapter 1, he makes, makes it clear that, that Jesus is God. He writes, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, through Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Even though Jesus was the agent of creation, the universe was created through him. He did not cling to his position and status, but submitted to the Father's plan to rescue and renew all creation through him. Then verse 7, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. This is one of those verses that theologians love to dig into and discuss and debate. What does it mean that Jesus gave up his divine privileges? Other translations say he emptied himself or became nothing. And there are a lot of ideas out there. If you're interested, come talk to me later and I'll point you to some resources because that's not the main point today. But whatever it means, we know that it was only temporary. This emptying, this pouring out was a temporary thing. For a period of time on earth, Jesus' full identity was hidden from view. As God, he deserves to be worshipped and honored and exalted at all times, in all places. But for a period of time while living on earth, he willingly and obediently set aside that privilege which is rightfully his. Paul writes that Jesus took the humble position of a slave. And this is, this is metaphor. Jesus was not literally a slave. The Gospels tell us that he was, he was a carpenter until he entered his ministry. But like a slave, he obeyed the Father completely and submitted himself to the Father's will and became a human being. Let's think, think about this. God becoming human is one of the most incredible claims of the Christian faith. In fact, it's one of the major objections that skeptics bring up when trying to refute Christian belief. Gods don't become human. And this really becomes a moment of faith on our part. The Bible teaches that God, that, that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. And I think our, our finite human brains can't completely comprehend this teaching. It's a mystery beyond our ability to understand that God himself, the creator, would come down to our level and the level of creatures and dwell among us as one of us. It, it's an amazing, amazing mystery. How, how, not only humbling, but how humiliating would this be? So uh, imagine Elon Musk, and I'm, I'm sorry for ruining your day with that, but <laughs> the you know, richest man on earth, worth $180 billion. Imagine Musk losing everything and ending up sleeping in a homeless shelter and standing in line at a soup kitchen. 
right? That's a fall, right? Yet it doesn't scratch the surface of the distance that Jesus took from leaving the throne room of heaven, the creator, leaving heaven to come to meet us. And this was the only way to show us what God is really like. When we look at Jesus, we see God. Paul wrote, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Whenever we wonder what God is like, all we have to do is turn to the Gospels and observe Jesus. This is your God, the humble servant king. So when we look at Jesus, we see God. And at the same time, when we look at Jesus, we also see the perfect human. Whenever we wonder how to live in this world as citizens of heaven, all we have to do is turn to the Gospels and observe Jesus. He's the only example of perfect love, the only example of perfect humility and obedience and grace. Gordon Fee, again, he writes, the ultimate paradigm of a genuinely Christian mindset is Christ himself who is the premier manifestation of the character of God, which God is trying to reproduce in his people so that they, they might also be truly human. When we see the character of Jesus, we think this is what God is trying to reproduce in us. When we look at Jesus, we see God. When we look at Jesus, we also see the perfect human. And the only way we could truly see God, the only way we could see what a truly human life looks like was for Christ to come and be born as a human. So back to Philippians 2, verse 8. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Not only did Jesus become human to reveal God to us and to reveal true humanity to us, but he paid the price that was necessary for us to gain adoption into God's family. And he did it in the most brutal and humiliating way. Roman, Roman crucifixion was re reserved for slaves and insurrectionists, people who had no rights or status, the lowest of the low. And Jesus associated himself with that class of people. Jesus, the agent of creation, became nothing and poured out his very life for his people. The cross, Fee writes. So Fee is going to get a, a, a co-author credit for this, uh, this message. I'm, I'm quoting him so much, Gordon Fee. He says, the cross was God's scandal, God's contradiction to human wisdom and power, that the one they worshipped as Lord should have been crucified as a state criminal at the hands of Lord Caesar's proconsuls, that the Almighty should appear in human dress and that he should do so in this way as a Messiah who died by crucifixion. And that's a sad story if it ends there, but it doesn't end there. Verses 9 through 11, Therefore, because of Jesus' obedience, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And many of Paul's listeners in Philippi from Jewish backgrounds would be able to hear an echo in this passage back to the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah recorded an oracle. It's found in 
in uh, chapter 45, declaring the words of the Lord. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. They would have recognized that. And because of the obedience of Jesus, God the Father super exalts him, lifts him up to the highest possible place and bestows on him the name that is above all other names. God the Father bestows on Jesus the Son his own name, which is Lord. This passage that Paul wrote, there's kind of a double entendre here talking about the name Jesus, Christ's earthly name, but also saying that the real name he's speaking of here is Lord. And this also goes back to the Old Testament. The writers of these books were reluctant to write out the name of God, Yahweh. So they would simply refer to God and his character as the name. So in, in, in the teaching, in the conversation, with the, when they said the name, everybody knew we're talking about God here. Or else they would use the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. So by declaring that Jesus is Lord, God the Father is making clear that all of the worship and praise and reverence and allegiance and awe that he deserves also applies to Jesus. At the end of time, at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in submission and every tongue will confess that he truly is Lord. And the Philippians would no doubt be encouraged to hear these words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember that they live in a Roman colony. Philippi is a Roman colony where the emperor cult is alive and well. In Philippi, the citizens think of the emperor as divine, as a god. They sing songs about Caesar being savior and lord. Their coins are imprinted with the phrase, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is lord. But someday, Paul is telling them, someday everyone, everyone will eventually bow the knee in recognition that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord. Someday Nero, the emperor at the time that Paul is writing this, Nero, that despicable human being, someday Nero will bow his knee. Someday Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great will bow. Someday Hitler and Stalin and Putin will bow. Someday Washington and Lincoln and Roosevelt and Reagan and Trump and Biden will bow. The rich and famous, the poor and obscure, from every culture, in every era, will bow the knee and confess at last that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the super exaltation of Jesus, Jesus being exalted to the highest place, is possible because he first humbled himself. And our exaltation to the family of God is possible because we first humble ourselves before him and declare that he is Lord and we are not. Gordon Fee, one more time. Humility is a uniquely Christian virtue which, like the message of the crucified Messiah, stands in utter contradiction to the values of the Greco-Roman world, which generally considered humility not a virtue, but a shortcoming. He writes that humility has to do with a proper estimation of oneself, 
the stance of the creature, us, standing before the creator, utterly dependent and trusting. God is calling his children to live in humility. And when we do so, we are standing against the tide of our culture, which, like the Greco-Roman world in the New Testament, generally considers humility not a virtue, but a shortcoming. How do we live on earth as citizens of heaven? How do we demonstrate that the church, the family of God, is an outpost of heaven? We follow the example of Jesus, the servant king, and live a life marked by humility. When we set aside selfishness, when we stop trying to impress others, when we think of others before we think of ourselves, when we look out for the interests of our family members and friends and neighbors and even our enemies, when we cultivate an accurate estimation of ourselves as creatures standing before a creator, when we embody this humility, then the watching world will see Jesus. However, humility is not natural for most of us. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, right? Humility is not natural for us. We tend toward pride and promotion and making ourselves the center of the universe. So if it's not natural, but God is still calling us to live this way, then we must conclude that this is supernatural work. This is work that the Holy Spirit must accomplish in our lives with our cooperation, and may we have the good sense to ask for his help. By way of application, as we wrap up, I have three very quick points. We, we can believe in humility. We can read this and say, yeah, I, I, we need to be humble. But this is just an abstract, an abstract concept until it is paired with action. So here are three quick principles to apply this in our lives. First, humility is listening. This is a way to practice humility in, in your daily life, daily conversations. It sounds simple, but how often in a conversation do we listen only long enough to figure out what we're going to say next? Like, that's a very simple, you know, you know sometimes, sometimes humility just means asking questions and shutting our mouth. Pe people love to tell their story, so, so listen. This is, this is a way to demonstrate humility. Second, humility is learning. We can learn from everyone in every situation. Uh, and consider once again the example of Jesus. He left his position in the throne room of heaven, set aside his divine privileges, and crossed cultural boundaries to meet us. And he started from scratch. Like Jesus could have sent him in on a Harley with guns blazing, right? But, you know, instead, God sent Jesus in as a baby. He didn't arrive on earth fully conversant in Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew or knowledgeable about the intricacies of Judaism. He demonstrated his ability by taking on the posture of a learner. Likewise, Jesus can help us in this area. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, writes that if I'm a disciple of Jesus, then I'm learning from him how to lead my life as he would lead it if he were I. Did you get that? 
If Jesus was literally in your place living your life, what would that life look like? How would that affect how you treat others? How would that affect how you make decisions? And we can feel free to ask him. So humility is listening, humility is learning. And finally, humility is letting go. Humility is letting go. I'm not, see, I'm not saying we need to give up and, and quit trying. But there are some things we need to let go of. And, and this might be personal for each, each one of us, but some possibilities here. We have to let go of trying to impress others, as Paul wrote. The little secret is that most people are focusing on themselves anyway. They're not, they're not really spending 90% of their time focusing on you. So let's let go of trying to impress others. And we also have to let go of our need to be right all of the time. I think this is one of the curses of, of our current culture. Jesus wants us to love, love God, love our siblings in his family, love our neighbors, love our enemies. He has commissioned us to carry his good news to everyone everywhere to the ends of the earth, not to point out how wrong everyone else is. Let's let go of our right, of our need to be right. And we also have to let go of our expectations of ourselves and others. Unmet and unspoken expectations lead to resentment, which is the antithesis of humility. Resentment says, I, I deserve this. By all means, talk about your expectations and your closest relationships, family, work, all, all those kinds of things. But understand that nothing really ends up as we expect it will. So what do we do? How do we do this? The wise King Solomon said, instead of having expectations, he said, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So may we ask the Holy Spirit to give us the humility of Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we declare as all of humanity eventually will, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for the sacrifice and obedience and example of Jesus. Thank you for the call to humility. And we recognize that this is not something that we have on our own. So we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would invade our lives. Come in and speak to us and change us and transform us into the people that you've created to be. Give us the character of Jesus in our lives so that the people around us, when they see us, when they interact with us, when they have conversations with us, they will not see us, but they will see Jesus. We thank you for meeting with us today. We ask that you give us the power and ability to represent you well throughout this week. And, and as we go, 
until we meet again. We thank you in advance for a sense of your presence. And thank you for the privilege of being your ambassadors in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus, the humble servant king. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. If you'd like to pray, please come forward. Uh, many people would be happy to pray with you. If not, we'll see you next week.